Church, uh, it's so good to be here with you all, and good morning to those who may be visiting for the first time. We sincerely welcome you. My name is Dwight. I have the privilege of serving here as a senior pastor, and um, I have a very important congregational announcement I'd like to share. If you are a formal member of this church, you should have received this communication through uh, in your email through the Bree system we use. If you're a formal member and you didn't get that communication, just email office at Renewal, and we, uh, we hope to get that fixed and situated so you're kept up to date um, on announcements. But you may remember uh, from announcement time that we've been talking about since May 2022 hiring a director of community life uh, that's been in need. And so during that process, uh, we had an applicant uh, named Eunice Ko. And if you also remember, uh, our hope, in fact, was to... Uh, prioritize hiring a female to that role uh, in the recognition of, frankly, the importance of elevating, empowering, encouraging uh, the women of our church, especially in light of the fact that historically we have fallen short of supporting our women to the degree to which we should have. And so in the midst of that search, we came across an applicant. Her name is Eunice Ko. And through the course of that interview process, it began to become clear that she was actually very gifted in administration and uh, executively gifted. And so given the fact that Pastor Ryan had just called to be the lead pastor at City Line Church, we began to explore whether uh, that role of, instead of community group life director, she might even uh, serve as an executive director, fulfilling uh, many of the roles and responsibilities that Pastor Ryan was involved with, but also, of course, uh, also being able to give that unique voice and, and help in, in the shepherding of, of women in the church as well in leadership on that front too. So uh, we are very excited to share that we have formally uh, hired Eunice Ko. She's here this morning with her husband, Seth. So if you guys wouldn't mind just standing for a second, let's warmly welcome them. Uh, so again, she will be helping with strategic uh, implementation, uh, planning, uh, operational oversight of the various ministries, working closely with me and all the other uh, the, the other uh, pastoral staff and sessions. So we're we're so grateful, and we're looking forward uh, to the ways in which you know this is just one more step in growing together as a church. Certainly, that it would hopefully benefit the women, but beyond that, I think. Um, just that the church collectively would really benefit uh, through her and through her leadership. So do pray, do welcome, and, and let's thank God for his provision as uh, he continues to provide staff, even most recently, uh, Pastor Hansu and, and Juana. So we're so grateful for that. Uh, can I pray for us as we look at the word of God together? And let's get, give God thanks for this important development as well. Lord, you promise that as we seek first your kingdom and righteousness, all things will be added unto us. The promise is that all things that are needful for the service of your kingdom surely will be provided. We know that's true for us as individuals, but we believe that to be true as a church as well. And we have seen this uh, over the course of the past several years, ways in which you have provided so graciously, so fittingly, and in such a timely way. 
And so we thank you for the gift of Eunice and the leadership she will bring and the role that she would play. We thank you for her experiences, who you have made her, all that you've brought her to, and that you've brought her here to renewal for such a time as this, in this particular season and place and with this particular community, because you know what we've needed and vice versa. We pray that as she and Seth join this community that we as well could help serve their needs, encourage and support them. We look forward uh, to the ways in which, Lord, we do believe as that you have led in this way, that this will be for the benefit of not only the health of the church, but the further advancement of your mission. Lord, we also uh, come before you thanking you for your presence now and thanking you that you are a God who continuously speaks. You speak to your people through your ancient word. And so we pray uh, now as we come before your word that we would come with open hearts, with humble hearts, with expectant hearts for the things that you want to show us about ourselves and the things that you want to show us about yourself, most importantly. And so open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, believe it or not, we're nearly... Uh, at the end of our sermon series through the life of David. Uh, Pastor Hunts will be closing it out next week, and it's then our Advent season. I can't believe it. Um, but the books of First and Second Samuel have given us this long, unfiltered look into the life of David. And not only does it reveal much about the heart of King David, but ultimately it reveals so much about the heart of God. And it points us to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been following along, there's quite a crazy arc to David's life, all right? If you put yourself in his shoes, he goes from a simple life in the pastures, then he goes to the palace as a hero following the defeat of Goliath, and then from the palace to the place of wilderness, running for his life from King Saul who was trying to kill him. Then back to the palace when he's anointed as king and then back to the place of the wilderness again. And this time fleeing not from Saul but from his very own son Absalom. As we heard last week, Absalom who usurped his throne, who wanted him dead. And you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapters 14 through 16. And it's, it's during this time, as Claudia pointed out for us, David composes this psalm at that time. And here again, in this psalm, the heart of David is revealed. More specifically, as Old Testament scholar David Kidner writes, we see in David's life that it's through the worst of things that the best is brought out of him. Beauty is brought forth from his heart in this terrible season of his life. And frankly, the same is true for us. The most spiritually mature, the most Christ-like people you meet those whom we might describe, like David, as a person, as a man or woman, after God's own heart, if you get to know people like that, their lives are often marked by some kind of deep, deep 
wound. They are often very familiar with pain, well acquainted with suffering. I think this was in fact true of our mission speaker last Sunday, Dr. Pat Crayer, who could barely get through the sermon talking about people who don't know Christ without tears. I so appreciated his beautiful heart But it became clear in the course of his message, if it was evident as you were listening to him, man, it was forged. That heart was forged through a lot, a lot of pain. This is what God does. He draws forth beauty out of pain. He shapes us into the best version of ourselves through suffering. And in the psalm, written in the worst of times, paradoxically, again, David is at his best here. And he composes this beautiful prayer from which we have so much to learn because it's not just automatic that pain is going to bring beauty forth in your life. It's not just this automatic, mindless thing. As someone wisely said and succinctly put it, Suffering will either make you bitter or better. It's either going to make you a deeply embittered and angry person or it's going to make you better. You're going to grow from it. You're going to become more and more beautiful. You see, how you respond in your suffering, how you respond to suffering matters. The response matters. And in this regard... This is what I'm getting at when I say there's much to be learned from David here as we hear the cry of his heart. But more than just learning of David's heart, we learn more of the God that David cried out to, his beauty, his worth, and that he is to be desired and pursued, as we confessed earlier, above anything and everything else. So let's study this psalm. I'm going to follow our our brother Ray's lead here, Raymond's lead, under three points. David's desire for God, the satisfaction of God, and then David's trust in God. So once again, David's desire for God, the satisfaction of God, and then David's trust in God. So first, the desire for God. Again, Really appreciate, take some time to appreciate the situation David is in here. This man has literally lost everything. He lost his position as king, his power, his status that that go with that. He lost his palace, his home, all the physical and material comforts that come with that. He lost the loyalty of those who once loved him and followed him and adored him. He's lost four children By this point, all as part of the fallout brought about by his sin against Bathsheba, Uriah, and God. And even though Absalom is alive, in a sense, he's lost Absalom too. His own flesh and blood. Think about this, parents. That baby you love, that you treasured, grows to the point where they steal. He steals his throne and then wants him dead. Not just, I don't want to talk to you anymore, but actively is pursuing his father to kill him. 
Now, you never want to compare people's pain, right? But man, it's hard to imagine how things could get much worse for a human being than this. Yet what is the cry of David's heart? What is his chief concern? And what we read in Psalm 63 is he actually does not cry out for justice as understandable and fitting as that might be. He does not cry out for his throne back. He does not cry out that he could just go home. He doesn't even cry out to be reconciled with Absalom. And again, it's not that those things don't matter at all, but they're not where his mind and heart go first. His chief concern, what he deems most needful in that moment, what he desires and wants most is God himself. He prays, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He actually is literally in a physical dry and weary land. His literal physical situation of being in a desert place and the intensity of thirst that comes with it. The kind of thirst that you don't just feel in your mouth, but your entire body, every fiber of your being, his physical situation parallels and helps him to express the desperation with which and the degree to which he needs God. Friends, consider when trouble comes your way, where do you turn first? Not where do you know you're supposed to turn. That's not the question. But functionally, where do you really turn? I'll be honest, my temptation, and I know I'm far from alone in this, is to frankly just turn to distraction. Because it's not enjoyable. Nobody likes to think of the hard things. Nobody likes to, to dwell on the painful things. And so we just want to not think about it. We want to distract ourselves. And modern life has made this oh so easy. We can binge watch something. We can scroll endlessly on our phone. We can pursue whatever thousands of hobbies that exist out there. You can go and just just fall into the rabbit hole of YouTube, learning new things. Like with this weather, I actually love the fall. I like it cold. I, I just do not do well in heat. I am less Christ-like when it's hot outside. I love the cold. I have one of those solo stove things, and I kind of just redid my backyard. So now I've gotten consumed with looking on Facebook Marketplace for free wood and then I find out, okay, well, there's all this free wood, but it's not chopped really well sometimes. So then I was like, hon, I think I need an axe. And then I go and start to research, and I learn that a regular axe isn't enough. You need something called a maul that splits that thing in one shot. And then I go on YouTube, and I start finding out the most effective ways to cut wood. And there's like 55 videos on that. I mean, if we allow ourselves, you could be distracted with no end in sight. 
Christian philosopher Peter Kreeft, in speaking of distractions, uses this analogy of it's like having a hole in the middle of your living room floor. A giant hole in the middle of your house, and instead of actually fixing it, you just go and take wallpaper that closely matches whatever your floor looks like and cover the hole. And let's just walk by it each day and let's kind of pretend that it's not there. Or he uses the analogy of it's like having a rhinoceros in your house, this big scary beast that you, what am I going to do with this thing? But instead of dealing with the rhinoceros, you bring in a million mice. Some of you are like, that's worse. But you bring in a million mice who just crawl all over the rhino and at least you don't see the rhino. The million mice are distractions. The wallpaper over the hole is distraction. But in the end, you and I know that never solves anything. Holidays are coming up. Perhaps going home for you and being with relatives is a hard thing. And perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I don't want to think about the painful things. I don't want to talk about the painful things. I'm just going to go smile and act like everything's okay and bear it till next year. Let's not really delve into how it makes me feel and where my heart is. I don't want to touch it. I'll just smile and fake it till I make it. But it doesn't solve anything. It's just simply delaying something you need to deal with in your heart. You see, David leans into the pain. And then, with that, he leans into God. Because he recognizes God is what I need most. And he's going to be the only one. He is the only one that's going to actually help me deal with this. He desires him most. And as a result, as you continue to read the psalm, you find here's this man, probably still in some cave, still estranged from his son, still being hunted. Nothing's changed. Yet what do you read in the psalm? He's praising. He's content. How is that? How could that be? Let's turn to our second point, the satisfaction of God. David cries, oh God, you are my God. This is not what proverbially, proverbially is called the foxhole prayer. A foxhole prayer is in the time of war and the bombs are dropping. <laughs> Soldiers who aren't even Christian, God help me. That's called a foxhole prayer. You don't know God. You don't have a relationship with you. You're just this general call. If anybody's up there, please help me. No, he says, you are my God. This is a personal cry. This is an intimate cry because David truly knows God and is known by God. David is, in other words, in an intimate covenant relationship with God. And all those who truly know God and are known by God in covenant with God by grace through faith, one of the signs that that's true is you will have a thirst for him. Isn't this what Jesus says when describing the character qualities of those who truly belong to the kingdom of God? In the Sermon on the Mount, that's what it is. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes as we call them. 
They're simply describing here is what authentic faith looks like. Someone who really belongs to the kingdom. And what's listed right there? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a hunger and thirst for the things of God and ultimately God himself. Oftentimes, people begin the Christian life or they begin seeking God out of some kind of need. And this is, this is okay. It's part of the process, right? Perhaps they're an alcoholic or drug addict and they've tried everything, nothing's, and so they want to turn to God to, to seek freedom from some addiction. Perhaps their life is a mess. They're seeking some sense of peace, some sense of purpose and meaning. Perhaps they're appreciative of finding community, that they've been so isolated and lonely. And what they discover is that Christians have community. And so they're drawn to God for, for these different reasons. And it may start that way. But you see, when there's authentic faith, when a person, in theological terms we'd say, when there's a truly regenerate heart, when that heart begins to change and they're being made new, they begin seeking God for God. That's a very important distinction. Not seeking God because he can give me this or do that for me or do this for me. Begin seeking God for God because they see Christ as their treasure. Christ as lovely. Christ as beautiful. You see... For those who know God, there is this strange paradox that they begin to experience. Let me explain. The message is the gospel. You've heard this, and you're going to hear it all the time here at Renewal. We're created to worship God. We're created to find our ultimate joy and fulfillment in him. But humanity rejects God. We turned from him, and we sought happiness elsewhere. We sought soul satisfaction in created things rather than the creator. Sex, money, power, even good gifts, friends, family. We turn those good things into ultimate things. And you see, every human being, religious or not, everyone is earnestly seeking something. Remember, David says, earnestly I seek you. You not, might not be earnestly seeking God, but you're earnestly seeking something. We're all thirsting for something. We're all chasing something. We're all seeking to build our life on something. And so in this sense, you see, religious or ir irreligious, everybody worships. Because worship, another way of understanding it, is simply worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H. Worth-ship. Because you're ascribing ultimate worth to something. That's what worship is. You're choosing to say, this is of ultimate worth. This is worth living for, and dare I say, dying for. Everybody's worshiping something. But because we were created by God and for God, only in Him will our restless souls truly find rest. Every other well that you try to drink from is going to ultimately leave you thirsty. It might work for a little bit, but it's going to fall short. And so God in his grace invites us to come and have our soul thirst quenched in him. This is the clear promise of Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? John chapter 4. Likely with this promise from Isaiah that I just read in mind, he tells the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. We can experience this deep, satisfying, soul-quenching, soul-quenching because Jesus paid for it. It's free to us. That's why it's come and buy free, come and eat free, come and drink free. Jesus paid for it. He was rejected in our place for our sin of the rejection of God. And upon the cross, Jesus cries out. He suffers as part of that absorbing God's wrath. I thirst. And he does that so that all who trust in him will never have to truly be thirsty again. That your soul would be quenched. So, all that to say, if you're really a Christian, every true believer knows and has experienced that. That thirst-quenching power has tasted the satiating joy and love of Jesus. This is what David is expressing when he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Verse 5, My soul be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Content, satiated. Yet at the same time. Here's the paradox. What is David crying out? I'm thirsty for you. I'm hungry for you. And so you see the paradox? The genuine believer has been truly satiated, but still wants more, but still thirsts for more. I'm not sure anyone frankly, has put it better than A.W. Tozer. He expresses it like this. O oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O oh God, the triune God, I want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty. I want to want thee. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. That is the paradox that will mark every genuine Christian. You are at the same time quenched Eternally happy in Jesus, but still thirsting for more. And so I'd like to, I, I'd like to 
I'd like us to consider how this might apply to us. For those of you, I'm not talking to seekers right now. For those of you who are professing believers, do you see in yourself this desire for God not because of what he can offer you, but simply for him? Because you love him and you find him beautiful. Along these lines, does your prayer life only consist of needs and requests? As much as we are invited to bring those things, but is that all it is? Do you ever pray prayers simply for more of him? More closeness, more enjoyment of him. And I say this with all love in my heart. I'm not trying to beat you down or disparage you, but I think the loving thing to do, and Scripture calls us to do this, make your calling and election sure. Don't want you to be misinformed. If you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but that sounds foreign to you, then I lovingly have to say, perhaps you can talk with I'll be up here, a friend that brought you, but do you really know him? For others of us, perhaps you can confidently say, yeah, I know what that is. That doesn't sound foreign to me. That paradox you're talking about, I get it. I do want God for God, but if you're honest this morning, it's woefully weak. Perhaps you read this psalm in the language of earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints. Feels so far away that though it's not completely foreign, it's pretty close to feeling foreign at least any time in the past few years. That can be discouraging, frankly. But here's what I want to say to you. If that's your heart, you recognize that, and you're grieved by it, like that bothers you. If, if you sense, as Tozer expresses, this, I want to want him. I hear that psalm read, and I know that's where I'm supposed to be. I'm so not there but I wish I was. I want you to be encouraged because that, in fact, signals you truly are a child of God. You do belong to him because if you didn't, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't even know what I'm talking about. If you're convicted about the weakness of your longing, consider this time the gentle whisper of the lover of your soul calling you to stop settling for less because he loves you so much. He so desires that you would experience and know his love more. This love that is better than life. And just like with our physical appetite, problems with an with our spiritual appetite often signal a health problem. 
You know, like physically when my kids, they're like, I'm not hungry, I don't want to eat. What's the first thing in my mind? Is, are you healthy? Is everything okay? Are you sick? Because when you're unhealthy, you lose your appetite. And likewise, no hunger for God signals unhealth. You're bored with God? That's not the state that he wants to, for you to just remain in. It's a sign of unhealth. And as with physical health, we have to ask, well, what's causing the appetite issues? And spiritually speaking, we need to consider, are there things in your life that are frankly simply quenching your appetite for God? We have a health hazard going on in our house right now. It's called four bags of Halloween candy. And the worst part is, out of my four kids, the three boys all have nut allergies. My favorite candies all happen to be the ones with the nuts in them. And so three bags worth of Reese's, three bags worth of Snickers. And I'm just like, every time I'm walking by, I'm like, all right, dad will take the hit. Just give me all your peanut butter cups. Give me all your Snickers. I mean, it's been hard. But we have to tell our kids, you understand this. You can have your candy. That's why we, we allowed you to go and get it. But no candy before dinner. Because it'll spoil your appetite. And likewise, when it comes to our spiritual appetite or lack of, you need to consider... What am I feasting on rather than Jesus? What could be ruining, frankly, my appetite for him? Certainly, if there's an overt sin, an unrepented overt sin issue in your life, you better believe that's going to quench your appetite for God. Absolutely. That's like eating the bag of Halloween candy. <laughs> or as mentioned earlier, Perhaps it's something as seemingly innocuous as feasting at the table of endless distractions. Just your attention is everywhere and anywhere but God. Of course, your appetite will shrink. Positively, much like your physical appetite, the way you grow your appetite, hunger, is to eat more. You keep skipping meals over time, what that does is actually diminishes your appetite. It's not that you don't need the nutrients, but you just lose that hunger. Your appetite diminishes. And likewise, the more you feed, the more the need for food grows. How do you think those, my wife, every July 4th, she's like, don't turn on the TV. I do not want to see those hot dog eaters. That is gross. It's like 85 hot dogs in two minutes. She's like, that is what's wrong with our country. I was like, you're right, but I find it kind of fascinating in a strange way. But just shoveling hot dogs. How do you get to a point where you eat like 80 hot dogs or whatever insane ungodly number they're eating? They ate a little, and then they stretched it. And they ate more, and they stretched. And then eventually your capacity gets huge. Your hunger increases. So just like parents tell their kids, even when you don't feel like eating, eat. Because that promotes health. 
spiritually speaking. Come to him even when you don't feel like coming to him. And maybe, in fact, it's better to say this way. Come to him, especially when you don't feel like coming to him. Because that's when you need him most. And maybe not immediately, but eventually, you will find an increasing hunger and thirst for more of him. Because how it works, the more satisfied a person is in God, the hungrier they become for God. The last thing I'll mention here is that oftentimes our thirst and hunger for God and the corresponding satisfaction in Him are grown through suffering. Several years ago, I remember being at a point where I was frankly just dissatisfied with the condition of my heart. Nothing was majorly wrong in my life. In fact, circumstantially, I would say things were circumstantially going great. Life was great, church was great, all these things. But if I was deeply honest with myself, I knew in my heart that reading something like Psalm 63 felt less authentic than I wanted it to. It's like this gospel stuff has become a little too familiar, Jesus. It's a little too easy for me to talk about you without all. It's a little too easy for me to talk about hell Without being brought to tears, I'm just not happy with where I am. And I remember clearly, as I'll sometimes do, I just come in here by myself, and I sat in one of those pews, and I just talked to Jesus. And I said, frankly, this, I miss you. And I miss that nearness I felt when I was younger. That intimacy, that just such, that, that nearness that when I think of you, when I think of your goodness to me, I'm just brought to tears. I want that back, Jesus. I want that. I longer, I hunger and thirst for you. And you know how we answered that prayer? The next three years of my life were arguably the, easily the worst season of my life. But through it, some of you are like, Man, I was all inspired to ask Jesus to get closer. And I'm not sure I'm going to pray that. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Here's what I found to be true. Jesus answered my prayer such that I can say today, with more honesty and real-life experiential knowledge, his love is better than life. But it came through being brought, brought to the point of despairing of life itself. That's how I came to know it to really be true. As precious and joy-giving, as even family, friends, being used by God in ministry, as great and wonderful and joy-giving as those things can be, Nothing compares to him. Not even close. As Scottish pastor and theologian Samuel Rutherford said, if the Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed. For with it, he will provide a deeper portion of Christ. 
Finally, having seen David's desire for God, learning about the satisfaction of God, let's close very, very briefly looking at David's trust in God. Verse 9 and 10. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Again, nothing's fixed. His circumstances aren't changed. He's probably still sitting in some cave as he prays this. His enemies are still after him. But we see in him this confidence, this peace just exuding from him. Why? Because he trusts in God. He's expressing trust in the fact that David's enemies were not too much for God. He knew that God was for him. He knew that God was righteous and just, and at a time of his choosing, that God would right all wrongs. In fact, God can even take what was meant for evil and work it for good. Simply put, it's trust in the truths and promises of God, which because of Jesus are now yes and amen and true for you too. How did he get here? How did he get to that place of exuding peace and contentment out of a cave? Look at verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on the watches of the night. What is this a picture of? He's having trouble sleeping. In the ancient Jewish culture, the evening was divided into three watches of four hours each. So when David said, in the watches of the night, it means he's waking up all night. Have you been there? I have. But your mind and heart are just so heavy and burdened. And you look, darn it, 12 o'clock. Da, 2 o'clock. Da, 4 o'clock. Da, got to go to work. <laughs> like that is such a horrible, horrible feeling. And David knew it. But what does David do? In the watches throughout the night, he wakes up and what does he do? I meditate on God, the truth of God, the promises of God. What do you and I often do? We seek distraction. We scroll. But instead, friends, pray. Ask for God's enablement that you might strive to pray and think on him. God feeling far away in that moment, that's okay. He did for David as well. What does he do? I remember when I was in the sanctuary. Think of the past faithfulness of God. Lord, I know you're distant now, but I remember when you were close, and I know that you're with me now. The famous hymn, It Is Well, penned by Horatio Spafford, was penned after the great Chicago fire destroyed basically everything he owned and the business that he built. Then he sent his family on a boat to England across the Atlantic, and that boat sunk, killing all four of his daughters, and only his wife survived. She writes this telegram, saved alone. That's when he penned, it is well with my soul. And one of the beautiful lines in that hymn, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. This peace... This contentment in the midst of life's sorrows is something you have to learn. And as with anything you learn, it takes practice. It takes repetition. Train yourself not to turn scrolling on your phone as you wake throughout the night when you're heavy laden. Rather, turn to God. If you're going to scroll through anything, scroll through his word. 
Scroll through his truth. Scroll through his promises. Scroll through the great testimonies of his faithfulness in your life. And eventually you too will join David in declaring, indeed, you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, all this stuff is still happening around me, but here I am in the shadow of your wings and I will sing for joy. Let's pray. Just before we close in song, I want to give you a moment.